Welcome to Office Hours, a podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Marcia Chatlin, and the concept is simple. Each week, one professor, me, and one student, lots of conversation. Office Hours, for the things we don't talk about in class. Today on the podcast, I talked to Mahmoud Mahmoudov, a recent graduate of Oberlin College, about American dreams. How are you, Mahmoud? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Um, how's your summer been? Uh, it's been amazing. Um, so I'm with the uh, Truman Summer Institute, the Truman Foundation. Uh, like we talked about previously, I'm working at AmeriCorps, uh, but mostly just hanging out with everyone, getting to know them, and I've really enjoyed that. Well, it's very exciting to have you here on the <coughs> podcast for a number of reasons. One, um, because you're a Truman Scholar, and I've been interviewing you guys for this season of Office Hours. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, the Truman Scholarship is such a special experience for me because I get to get really close to bright and lovely young people and I don't have to do really anything for them (laughs) because I don't have to teach you or write letters of recommendation. I mean, you can ask me, Mm. but I have like all the upsides of being a professor without any of the work. So I love that. Um, But what I also like is that often Truman scholars have these really great stories about how they got to the place where they're being honored for their public service. And I know that you have an incredible story as well. So are you like, maybe. But I just want um, (laughs) you to tell our listeners a little bit about your family story and your background. Sure. Um, So I guess it makes sense to start from the beginning. So Mm -hmm. uh, I immigrated with my parents to the United States from Uzbekistan. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'd been born in Tashkent in 1994. And uh, that was kind of at the cusp of when the Soviet Union had collapsed. And so uh, my mother was actually in the first class of Uzbek citizens to apply for the U.S. visa lottery system uh, because they were incrementally letting people in while they were kind of figuring out how the government would transition. Uh, So she got lucky and she won as a member of the first class. And because she won, she was able to take my father and myself over. Uh, And then once we were there, a few months later, a few of her sisters were able to come. She has nine sisters uh, and one brother. Yeah, and we feel bad for the brother. But, uh, so I think, I, I don't remember the exact number, but I think it was four or five of my aunts um, came at the same time. And we ended up moving straight to Atlanta, even though they didn't know anybody. And uh, the greatest concentration of kind of Soviet immigrants is in New York City. Mm-hmm. Uh, so their flight was there, and then they were talking to people, and they just randomly ran into someone that spoke Russian. They were trying to find a connecting flight to figure out where they were going to go. Wait, so they're uh, at the airport? Yeah. And they don't have a final destination in no, mind? they have and, their luggage and $20. And you're a baby? Yes. So I'm about a year and a half at this point. And <clears throat> so they show up at, like, JFK or... Uh, I think it was JFK, yeah, at that point. And they're like, where am I? Yeah, because, I mean, there's no familial connection. Uh-huh. Um, or people they knew, but they heard from somebody that Atlanta would be good because the Olympics were coming up in 96. Oh, interesting. Uh, and so the idea was that there would be a good amount of jobs for people that didn't necessarily have uh, a language background or a skill set that they might need. Um, but it was strange for my parents because they both uh, were academically qualified. So my mother has a master's, my father has a PhD in chemistry. Uh, so they're a bit like science people. Mm-hmm. Uh, clearly, that didn't translate to me. Uh, but they came over with that background, so they had uh, technical skills they could leverage. Um, but because they didn't know the language, uh, they kind of had to take, like, entry-level jobs that otherwise they wouldn't have done. So my mother was a maid in a hotel, uh, and my b- father worked uh, at a liquor store. Um, and so as, um, as recent immigrants 
they're kind of flying by faith alone because had your parents ever visited the United States or no. ever had the opportunity to travel um, far west? Had this maybe to uh, Europe? They, they had gone to Europe, I think. Uh, I can't think of a specific destination, but it was it had to have been for more of travel purposes, not to live anywhere long term. And so do they tell you about those first, like, few days or the first... I don't know, month in they're in Atlanta, Georgia now. Yeah, uh, so uh, we, they actually ended up, and I ended up, I mean, with them obviously, and we stayed with uh, the first Russian family they met when they got here. Uh, this old woman, I don't actually know her full name, but it was called her Baba Sada, because mm-hmm. uh, Baba is like grandmother, loosely translated. Uh, so we lived with her for a few months until they were able to make enough money to get their own apartment. Um, I don't really know. I mean, the, the way they explained it was like they kind of just met her and then the, the, she took them in. But Isn't that amazing? Uh, Could you yeah, imagine anyone doing that today? No. I mean, life? we literally can't imagine that because we have that situation uh, with Syrian refugees, I think. And um, yeah. we do have that tangible choice to make. Um, and people don't. So, Or many people don't. Um, so, yeah, it's weird to think that the world has changed so much. That. So for your parents, um, the first thing they have to do is, I guess, learn English. Mm-hmm. And... You have to go to school. And yeah. so um, in your early days growing up in a bilingual household, did that make anything difficult at school for you? Um, not in terms of learning, I think, because I, so I, Russian was my first language. So when mm-hmm. I came to school, uh, neither my parents nor I knew English. So that was kind of the place I went to do that. Uh, I think the difficulties I faced were more so a little bit later on when I became aware of, like, uh, social divides and you need cultural capital to do particular things, uh, especially because we moved after a while to more of a suburban area. We're in Atlanta proper at first. Uh, and then we went to the suburbs where it was predominantly white people. Um, and so that became a little more different in terms of understanding, you know, how do I fit into social groups? And what am I supposed to do with my extra time? And how, like, how do I get fit in? And um, so when, when you were first in school, what did people read you as? I, I don't think tons of people would be like, oh, he's clearly Uzbeki. Yeah. Um, what kind of um, reaction or what did, kind of assumptions did people make about mm-hmm. you? Uh, it, was, it was always interesting because it was kind of a guessing game whenever I'd meet people. Uh, and I got Filipino a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, I got Mexican a lot because there ended up being, like, we moved to a different neighborhood. There were a lot of Latinos. Uh, every gauntlet of Latino you can get, every gauntlet of, like, Southeastern Asian uh, Hawaiian, uh, but once I think at a certain point I explained what Uzbekistan was, and it ended up being this weird thing because it's kind of the intersection of the Middle East and Russia and the Far East. So it's just like uh, all racism yeah, and exactly. hostility <laughs> all the time. It's like I'm gonna try to in my body converge yeah. all of the places where there's like the grossest stereotypes. Yeah. Right. Yeah, uh, and so depending on what's happening in the world at the time, and when September 11 happens, I am all of a sudden a terrorist, right? Uh, whatever something with Chinese people happens, you know, I'm like a gook or whatever. And it's just, it's bad because people don't necessarily attribute the positive of any of those identities to myself because I, I, I don't embody them. That's because, like, what is an Uzbek American? Mm-hmm. Um, but they're very quick to attribute the negative parts of it. And uh, so growing up in the, in the South, um, as someone who's not clearly read, um, what does that do for you socially at school? Because in, in my experience of school, it's like everything is about like racism and money. Mm-hmm. And so coming from a working class immigrant family 
and being labeled, mislabeled racially or ethnically, like, what does that mean for where you sit at lunch? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so we ended up moving to this neighborhood where I spent the majority of my childhood. That was simultaneously diverse in terms of numbers, but in terms of the popular culture that manifested itself in, like, social hierarchies, it was a white place. Um, so you'd have this weird thing where you feel different, but at the same time you're saying, I'm not different because I'm not white, because I see there are other non-white people who are doing things with white people. So it just ends up being, well, there must be something wrong with me. Um, and then I think... Uh, Something that was a big part of that experience with me was playing baseball growing up, mm. um, which I started doing when I was 11 when we moved to that neighborhood, and it was kind of a way for me to meet people. Um, so for me, I, I kind of saw everything through the lens of that, and, and that uh, I think when you're doing team sports, especially as a male, it kind of colors your perspective where you see things as kind of at the intersection of race, uh, class, like uh, masculinity. Um, so I don't know if it was necessarily one mm-hmm. thing at once. Um, it's kind of the combination of all. But you're also at a place where, like, so much of the history of Atlanta and the history of Georgia is framed by black-white dynamics, mm-hmm. too. And so what do you think your parents were observing also, coming from the context that they were coming from and then the, like, world that you're actually growing up in? Mm-hmm. They always, I think they recognize that, and I recognize that as the uh, dominant kind of discussion in terms of ways that it is white black but I think at the time that we were coming in I don't know why this happened but it coincided with a mass influx of immigrants in that region mm-hmm. uh, so it's not Atlanta proper but the suburbs so like Gwinnett County uh, Cobb County uh, and so for them and I think for me it was I never saw things as black white because that wasn't my experience that wasn't mm-hmm. the experience of what was happening to the people around me uh, but then later when I got into high school and college and I went actually back into the city to do some work um I saw how that kind of dominated the social landscape in a way that I wasn't aware of before. And so that makes me think, was it a matter of me not being in the right place to observe that as strongly as it was? Or was I just not cognizant of what was going on? Mm -hmm. Um, Because it wasn't, I I mean, I think if you're an outsider in any way, not just an immigrant, then a lot of how you work your way through social situations is not being critical of it it's saying how do I at least for me like my mindset is how do I find my way to succeed in this mm-hmm. not you know what's happening and all this stuff and so how did uh, you find ways to succeed in it because I imagine um, there are some barriers your parents being of an immigrant group that a lot of people aren't familiar with mm-hmm. um, you know you're 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 now here um, what are some of the ways that like you I don't know compensated or mediated some of that outsider status um, I think it did start with my parents mm-hmm. uh, because they, and they really did start with nothing in terms of the capital you need to get to places like this. Um, and I saw that they worked hard and they just instilled in me and my brother the idea that nothing external is ever going to limit you. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is a place, and the reason they moved here is because they thought it was a place where you can define yourself no matter what your circumstances are. Um, and I think that's been a pretty big theme in my life, even though as I get older, I realize it's much more complicated than that, of course. That's the thing uh, that's, like, uncomfortable about American dreams, right? Like, uh, you can embody it or, like, you can experience the best of it and realize how it is so fundamentally unfair, hmm. right? Because the American dream is predicated on, 
like super feats of strength, incredible luck, proper timing, bureaucracy working in your favor. And yeah, it happens, but the kind of what it takes to happen is mm-hmm. is, is not right. Yeah. Um, in my opinion, I shouldn't say it. like you don't have to agree with that. <laughs> That's no, how I, I feel. Mean, yeah, like yeah. it's like what it takes for your parents to be able to have a kid like you do super well, go to school like Oberlin, become a Rhodes Scholar. It's Herculean in effort. It's yeah. I mean, it's, it's it takes a lot of luck. Yeah, uh, and I I can see the things like I, I feel especially fortunate because I can see the inflection points where kind of fate took us in a different direction. Uh, so in those early years, when my dad was at the liquor store, he uh, there was this guy that would come in every week. His name was Dalton Miller, uh, and he would buy this case of PBR, uh, and he just like kept talking to my dad. And this is kind of how my dad learned English: just talking to customers. And then after a couple of months, he figured out that my dad, like, had a Ph.D. in chemistry. And so he asked him, well, what the hell are you doing here? Like, I work at the CDC. You might be able to be helpful for us. Um, and so you should come volunteer. And so he did that for a while, uh, and he was good at it. And so he ended up getting a job. Uh, and then my mom was able to get a job because of that because he had the N already. Uh, so I don't know. I just find it weird, uh, especially going through college when I'm at, at parties or something, I think. You know, I'm kind of here because this guy loved PBR, and he just, like, happened like, <laughs> meet my dad and talk to him. Yeah. Um, and that could have gone in a very different direction. And it, it does happen very differently for most people that come from similar circumstances. Um, so I, I do think that's an interesting dynamic you bring up because, like, I think I, given my life and the things I have right now, could just as easily stand up and say, you know, like, if you work hard and you, like, believe in whatever, you can do whatever. But it, I think that's... As much power as that might bring as, as, as an example, I think it's also kind of suppressing reality for a lot of people. Uh, and and in terms of your parents kind of fitting into their new life in Atlanta, um, were they able to meet other Uzbeki people to kind of form community with? No. Really? <laughs> so, I, yeah, I mean, it's something I find strange. They don't, they don't socialize in the same way that, mm-hmm. uh, like, parents of my friends do. Yeah. Uh, and I think it's because we always had that big family. So each one right, of my, my aunts... the same way. Like, no one makes friends. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I don't know how we ended up being somewhat social. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I'm so, Well, that's interesting. Maybe because we grew up in these contexts. Like, your friends were your cousins mm-hmm. and then the people from back home. And so I have a huge family that is, like, really into each other. But you know the way, like, American people have their, like, friends yeah. from childhood stuff? That's a little strange to yeah. me. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I totally feel that. Um, yeah, because, like, all my aunts lived with us. Some, mm-hmm. For some reason, we were, like, the host family always. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it was with us, and they had children and cousins. Um, so, yeah, I mean, to this day, I mean, I think they've, uh, as they've been here longer, they've been able to, like, have friends, but they don't, like, go to happy hours with their friends, and, like, they don't, like, have them over. I don't know. I just find that <laughs> weird. And so in your kind of process of kind of getting more and more acclimated and acculturated, were your parents really open to you kind of being this American kid? Or did they kind of, how open were they to you being so different than them? Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's changed over time. I think initially they were very wary of what they saw as uh, kind of Western values, which generally mm-hmm. means social liberalism. Um, so they didn't, like I wasn't allowed to like have friends over. I wasn't allowed to go over to someone's house. Um, until that's a huge immigrant thing, like they just like don't get you can't sleep over yeah, another never. person's house. I don't know. It's never. I don't know why that is, but that's yeah. like a consistent thing regardless yeah. of culture. Like the idea of sleeping in another person's home is considered uh-huh. a problem. Yeah, 
Yeah, like some of my friends are bringing it up. Like, you want to stay over? And we're just like, it's a foolish question. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know you're why. Like, <laughs> you're like, yeah, you're trolling like, me. Yeah, it's like, well, if I talk to your mom, I'm like, what the hell? It's like, <laughs> not going to happen. So you sleep in your own bed every yeah. night. Yeah, and it's just... So it was like that until, I think, um, towards the end of high school, like my senior spring, like I started to get away with things. There was uh, some lying involved that, <laughs> that enabled me to do that. Um, but I think in college... I was so far away. Like they, that wasn't that was really a foreign concept too. Because back there, uh, you go to school. If you go to school, you go to school close by, and you like stay with your family. Uh, we had a cousin uh, that lived with us. He went to Emory, and so he lived in our house. So we were like twenty minutes away, and that was kind of an expectation that I would do that too. But once it ended up going in a different direction, I think they already felt that they were losing me in a certain way, and so. Um, once I was able to kind of, I mean, I kind of pushed the buttons on my own. Obviously, mm-hmm. I, I would call my parents when I'm telling them everything I do. Uh, sorry if you're listening. <laughs> but um, I think once I was able to show that I was somewhat successful in the things I cared about, then it was fine. And so in making the, the like, pitch, like, hey, mom and dad, I'm actually going to go to college far away. Mm-hmm. Um, how? What were some of the talking points that other kids in that situation can use to explain to your parents why you have to go away to college and why you can't just live at home and go to school? That other kids would use? Yeah, like other kids can use some of your oh, strategies. Right. Well, I, I had a really specific situation because I got recruited to play baseball at Oberlin. Got um, it. And my, I mean, I was in high school, like my only thing that I cared about was playing college baseball. Like I was obsessive to a point that I find kind of strange today. Really? Uh, because I, once I got to it, I, I felt it like in my heart fall as something I wanted. Um, and I haven't really taken time to think through why I was that like adamant about it, but I mean, I, so I had four offers uh, in my senior year, and three of them were not very good academic schools. And, I mean, my parents hammered home that, like, school is the most important thing, so I thought, you know, I'm not willing to compromise that just so I can play baseball. Um, but once Oberlin offered me, I, I wasn't looking at schools of that nature. Like, I wasn't looking at liberal arts colleges. Um, but I had vaguely heard about it, and so once I got an offer, I was like, hey, this it might be interesting to check out. And so I went. Uh, and I enjoyed my visit, and I thought this is a good enough school for me to justify to myself and my parents that I can continue my dream but also get my education. Um, so I guess my advice is get as somewhat good at sports and then get recruited by a D3. <laughs> and you feel and, like uh, if, if that hadn't happened, do you think you would have stayed in Atlanta for college? Um, I think it's likely. It's So my brother is applying this upcoming fall, and it's interesting because I think his – process mirrors a lot of what I would have done, which mm-hmm. I find interesting. Uh, I mean, he's a better applicant because he's more qualified and he has better numbers, but my general approach was to apply to about 10 schools and then just see where I got in. Um, but I think the financial circumstances probably would have... Like, if I was going to go to an expensive private school, I think they would prefer to be Emory, mm-hmm. uh, so at least I could save on housing. Um, but I don't know. I, 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 thinking in retrospect... Uh, if I knew I knew now, I definitely would have taken a very different approach. Um, even going back, if I hadn't cared about baseball and everything was the same, I would have probably done something very different. What was it about baseball that made you <coughs> so excited? I think it was just my way of feeling like I had a stake in that group of people. Yeah. Uh, because, I mean, it's it's uh, the South, and if it's the South and you're male, it's either baseball or football, and I didn't want to die. So <laughs> I thought I should probably do baseball. <laughs> Smart, so you're being practical yeah, about it. But is that the way kind of guys get to be guys with each other? 
by playing sports? Uh, I think so, but I think that in the transition between middle school and high school in particular, um, people have varying degrees of success, and I was pretty awful starting out. But I you noticed. You mean socially? No, with baseball. Oh. Yeah. Um, and I noticed at some point that I, if I worked at it, I could become a little better. And so I think the slight success makes you feel like, okay, if I can get a little better, then I can probably get a lot better if I just keep working at it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that's just like an internal decision that I think a person makes at that like important age. I don't know why I thought that was the most important thing. But, I just, but I, because I also think there's a combination of me just legitimately loving it because there's mm-hmm. this innocence that comes with it's like playing a sport when you're like 12 or 14. Yeah. Um, and so did you play all four years at Oberlin? No, I actually didn't. What happened? So I played uh, up until the middle of my junior year. Uh, and uh, I was taking two seminars at the time. So I was writing these like 30-page papers. And it just got to the point. Um, it was only the week after my Truman interview, actually, where I realized that for a while I didn't feel the same about the sport that I did uh, previously. It took a lot more time than I thought was justified because your entire weekends are shot. You're practicing two and a half hours a day and then working out for an hour in the morning. And it wasn't that I didn't enjoy that necessarily, but I didn't enjoy it at the trade-off of my academic experience. And so this is what I think is always really hard for me as a faculty member is that sports that are not going to – I mean, I don't think you thought you were going to be an MLB player – you know, you delude yourself sometimes. <laughs> I mean, oh, so no, not, not in a serious way. Not no, but like, you know, I mean, it wasn't going to happen, right? Yeah, no. Um, but, <laughs> but athletics, regardless of the possibility for them to be your career after college, still take mm-hmm. a lot of time, energy, and effort. Yep. So whether you were playing women's squash or, you know, Division Seven, you know, mm-hmm. water polo or whatever, that it doesn't kind of matter. It still takes a lot of time and talent and mm-hmm. effort to do it. And so... Sports are really difficult because I yeah. think for a lot of students, that's where their social life comes from. That's where their identity comes from. But the trade-offs, I think, are sometimes hard to communicate to a student when they're in the middle of it. Yeah. Like the things that they won't be able to do. <clears throat> mm-hmm. And so when you stopped playing baseball, did you feel like your social world or other things kind of changed as a result? Um, or are you at such a small school it doesn't matter? Yeah. So that was – honestly, I, so I thought about it for about two weeks between the point where it initially entered my mind. I actually did it. And I realized that the biggest worry I had was that I might lose my closest friends. Mm -hmm. Um, It was a group of, like, four guys on the team in my grade. And that was what I was pretty worried about. But I was, like, proactive about talking to them and explaining my decision. Because people get weird on you for leaving the sports team. Yeah, no, definitely. And some people did. Um, I I mean, I lost friends. Yeah, I mean, luckily it wasn't the people I cared about. Mm -hmm. Um, But, yeah, especially at a small school like Oberlin, because I feel like uh, you're either – we have a joke. It's if your political ideology is either uh, Democrat, communist, or athlete, uh, and so it, I think it's hard to find. Especially by, I mean, it's longer story, but like by nature of everything I did on campus, I was kind of pegged as like that person that's like with athletes. And so once you take yourself out of that, it's kind of a weird space to be in. And so in terms of going to a school like Oberlin, which is often used as kind of the punchline and stories about these hyper-liberal schools. I can't even, when people start with this whole liberal elite nonsense about colleges. Um, Being an athlete in that environment, though, what is it like in terms of fitting into what is 
allegedly the dominant culture. Mm-hmm. Um, do people react to you very strongly when they find out you play a sport? Because that can get, I, I find that sometimes in class, a student will be like, I play a sport and not specify the sport because uh, they don't want to have like all these the stereotypes. stereotypes. Yeah. I'm like, why did you just tell me everyone's <laughs> sport? Like, what, what does it mean? But I realize it has so many more implications for the yeah. student than I can understand. Yeah. So what is it like being an athlete at a, at a liberal arts college? Uh, it's tough. Now, I, well, I think I think it depends on what kind of school. I, I'd say there are two kind of camps. There's kind mm-hmm. of the Amherst, Williams, Middlebury type of school, which is generally more conservative. And then mm-hmm. there's kind of the Oberlin, Vassar, you know, that league. Um, it's strange because I think, if, especially if you're a male that's on the football team, the baseball team, or lacrosse team, there's a certain connotation that comes with that. Yeah, because uh, of the, the high dude culture. Yeah. I mean, it's justified. It's yeah. definitely justified. Okay. Um, and so it's weird because on the one hand, when I hear criticism of athletes in general, I get where it's coming from. But at the same time, as far as it's levied towards individuals, uh, particularly me. <laughs> Unless <laughs> it's I, me, in which case I'm like, wait yeah. a second. But, I mean, but is it a little strange because you are an athlete <coughs> at an elite school and that comes with all this baggage? Mm-hmm. But you're also this, like, guy who immigrated from Uzbekistan who is also a Rhodes Scholar. I mean, that, that that's embodying a lot of dimensions. Yeah. Or I think it does. Yeah. Maybe it doesn't. No, it's 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 it is weird. Um, but I think at Oberlin, nobody really thought of me as an immigrant, really, because interesting. I associated. I mean, by nature of the baseball team, those are all the people you know even before you get to campus, and so that's your main group. Mm-hmm. And so people, I think, if anything, associated me more with white people, just because that's what the baseball team mostly was. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Oberlin is, I mean, not a very diverse place in a number mm-hmm. of ways. I think it's only 30% students of color. Uh, and even within that, it's fairly stratified in, in terms of class. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so people thought of me, not only because of that, I was also involved in like student government and I did things that were not necessarily popular with kind of the hipster contingent of campus, which mm-hmm. is pretty big. Um, so I think that I was mostly associated with kind of the white East Coast baseball guy. Even so though you none of those things kind of a little bit of a troll? I mean, I, I think I... I was perceived as being the super conservative guy, mm-hmm. which I found fascinating because now that I'm back in Georgia, even in our Truman class, I think if you mm-hmm. talked to people, they would say I'm probably one of the most like progressive people there. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, we've had a strange experience at Oberlin in the past four years, mm-hmm. not just my experience, but I think the school in general. I mean, you've probably read mm-hmm. all the articles of things that happen, and I think it's it's the kind of place where it's so polarized that you people kind of bifurcate um, ideology. And so... Mm-hmm. You're with us, you're against us, and generally I would agree with the sentiment behind what a lot of activists would be saying, but I think that uh, courses of action could be different. And so even in offering that, I would be pegged as like, oh, well, you're not with us, you're this super conservative dude. And then it doesn't help that I'm also on the baseball team, which is generally associated with conservative old white people. Uh, it doesn't help that I'm like trying to like do things like the Truman or the Rhodes because that also has connotations. And so... Um, I think I was always kind of fighting this identity thing, but I mean, at the end of the day, I was pretty focused even coming in on just um, making the most of it because I knew, like, my parents were paying a lot. This is not what they wanted, and that kept me pretty focused. So this is interesting. And so (coughs) now when you think about going off to England as a Rhodes Scholar, what what role do you think you'll play in that dynamic? Uh, in terms of playing out my identity? Just, just kind of like who you are in that environment. Because that's some really yeah. fancy stuff. I uh, know it <laughs> that is. That's <laughs> like as fancy and elite yeah. as it gets. Yeah. And so in that environment, where do you think you see yourself? 
Honestly, it's weird because people, I don't know, I think the, the social like conception of like the Rhodes Scholarship is this, this like super big thing. And honestly, I thought of it as that uh, before I got it and then I got it and I'm like, well, I'm still like, I still do stupid things. And like, I, I don't know. Um, if anything, I feel kind of relieved of pressure to uh, live up to anything because mm-hmm. at this point, I don't know, like you get it and then you kind of move on. Uh, I'm very cautious. And the, the other uh, treatments I know that are also going, uh, we kind of talk about this a lot, that I think there's a very slippery slope in terms of taking this and then kind of living this life where you're very much out of touch with the values that kind of brought you here. Um, so I'm kind of wary of that. Uh, and I want to make sure that I have experiences that remind me why I came here in the first place, like why I'm doing this. Um, but in terms of how that plays in my identity, I I don't know. I'm just going to be myself in, in all the complicated ways that whatever that means, I think. I remember after um, you found out you won the roads, you posted this thing on Facebook. It was so touching. <laughs> it was about the hotel. Yeah, um, yeah, the, yeah. Maybe the hotel where the interview was happening was across the street or the hotel that your mom used to clean. Yeah, so um, so we were on the what floors. It, it, was one of the t- it, was, it was one of these huge high-rise uh, skyscrapers. Where it was like a white shoe law firm where I had the interview. Uh, and so you could, I mean, they had, it was one of these really bougie places where they have like the floor to ceiling windows. Mm-hmm. And in the interview room, um, I just remember I could see, I don't know if you know what Stone Mountain is. Yeah. Yeah, oh, for back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, yeah I, so. I know that footnote, but continue. So, I mean, that's close to where I live. And so mm-hmm. I could see it. And so I thought about uh, just kind of like the neighborhood I grew up in. Uh, and then the hotel that I mentioned that my mother used to work at. Um, and the streets where I worked my first jobs, and it just kind of came together in a really beautiful way. And I mean, it also happened to be my parents' anniversary that day. And I don't know, I just feel like the world was conspiring at that moment to show me that it wasn't about me, uh, and that I had a responsibility that came with this to kind of reflect all the places and experiences that I had come from. Uh, and that stuck with me a lot because I, really I think beautiful. Yeah, thank you. I mean, because I, I, I did feel, and I think this maybe picked up on this in my talking about baseball, but I've always felt kind of a need to prove myself in different ways. And now, I don't know, something about that moment just made me realize, like, I, I think I'm being used uh, to do things beyond myself in a good way, and I have to keep my head in that. Um so hopefully I do a good job of that. We'll see. I guess we'll come back and <laughs> talk about that. So, Mahmoud, I'm going to ask you the last question that I ask everyone on this podcast. Mm-hmm. If there's one thing you wish you could have told all your professors at Oberlin or something you, you wish that they would have just known about you, what would it have been? I think I would have brought up a lot of things that we talked about just now in mm-hmm. terms of feeling that I did have to wrestle with my back or at least suppress some of it uh, in doing a lot of the things I did whether that was playing baseball or trying to do well in school or being in student government um, I think I can be somewhat stoic when I'm like going after stuff and I think that unfortunately I mean I became close to my professors but not in a way that I think they knew the full picture of where I was coming from um, and I regret that because I think uh, if people and I, I do think they invested in me a lot and I, I love the professor I was close with but 
I think I did owe them more in terms of showing myself because then, I don't know, maybe that would have helped paint a clearer picture of me and maybe that would have helped them think about how I might be helpful on campus in different ways. Um, so, yeah. Well, thank maybe they'll hear that. Thank <laughs> you so much. No, thank you for having me. Thank you for visiting Office Hours. Office Hours, a podcast, is a production of Dr. Marsha Chatlin and Alex Tyson. The views expressed on this podcast are those of the speakers and only the speakers. Visit Office Hours on the web at www.officehoursapodcast.com, on Twitter at Office Hours Pod, on Instagram at Office Hours Podcast, on Facebook at Office Hours a Podcast. Tune in each week on iTunes and Acast.